Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the December 27th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. With us today is Aya Jamarabong Rafa, with whom I will be discussing her poem, El Harb, or War, and my poem, To Drive Out Darkness. Before we get into that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of December 28th. On Monday, December 28th, from 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Loop Writing Workshop with Carol Ska. You can find out more information at LA poetsociety.org. Again, that's lapoetsociety.org. On Tuesday, December 29th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their weekly first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. This is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and sign up at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 8 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Alexa Lash and Kiana Major will be hosting their creatively undistanced open mic. You can find out more information at Major Muse on Instagram. That's M-A-J-O-R M-U-Z-E. Again, that's M-A-J-O-R-M-U-Z-E. From 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their new author showcase featuring Bridget Bianca, Paul Vangelisti, and James Coates. You can find out more information at lapoetsociety.org. From 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic on Instagram. And that's at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, December 30th, from 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting their online open mic you can find out more information at sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. Again, that's either sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. From 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting the third of their three 
writing workshop series, Love Letters to 2020. This is for anyone who's 13 or older. You can find out more information, again, at lapoetsociety.org. On Thursday, December 31st, from 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poet Society will be hosting their Love Letters to 2020 reading with myself and other participants of the poetry workshop over the past three weeks with Jessica M. Wilson. Again, you can find out more information at lapoetsociety.org. On Friday, January 1st, from 6 p.m. West African time, Graciano Elmorim will be hosting his Corona versus Open Mic via Instagram Live at Graciano Elmorim, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. On Saturday, January 2nd, from 9 to 11 p.m. Morocco time, Moroccan poets will be hosting their weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Moroccan Poets. Again, that's at Moroccan Poets. On Sunday, January 3rd, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their open mic. You can find out more information and register at Poetry LGBT on Instagram or Facebook. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT on Instagram or Facebook. From 6 to 8 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their monthly writer's workshop featuring Mara Faye Latham. You can find out more information and register at parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. Lit is L-I-T. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Aya Jamorvan Rafa. Hi, Aya. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Great. Wonderful. You brought with you your poem, War. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Al-Arb? Al-Harb? Al-Harb, which means war in Arabic. Right. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. I'm Aya. I'm uh, half Lebanese, half Filipino. I'm 24 years old. Mm. I live in uh, Lebanon, Beirut. One of my passions that have always been there since as long as I can remember is writing. Mm. Uh, It's something I love to do. It's something that helps me out to deal with everything in my life going on. And uh, as everybody knows, 2020 has been a difficult year. So... Uh, <laughs> so writing has have always been an uh, an escape or a medicine is is a better word if mm-hmm. you want to say. Mm-hmm. I work as a project coordinator, as a tour guide, as a bartender, and, and as a content researcher. I freelance between all of these things, mm-hmm. and hopefully at one point 
in the near future, once I have a bit of budget for it and some time to sit on it, I want to create a very small poetry book about this year, about the poetry I've written throughout this year and publish it. Mm. Uh, very small publishing, maybe like just 20 or 30 copies. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Thank you. In terms of your poetry, when did you start writing poetry? I think I started when I was around eight years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you remember why you decided to pick up poetry? I don't think there was a why for it, more of a, like, I have to. It's something like that happened organically. Mm. I just felt like it. Mm. Growing up, the situation of the house uh, wasn't ideal. My parents would sometimes fight or quarrel, and I believe in uh, or how I've analyzed myself. It, it might have been an outlet for me. Uh, like writing. Okay. So yeah, it was more of a of a need rather than a than a want. Like I want to write. Hmm. Yeah. You're you're not the only person who's told me this. That it is in a way, as you said, it is medicine. It is in a way an escape to maybe your own world rather than having to directly. Well, there's really nothing you can do, right? When you're eight years old and your parents are fighting. So. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you're, a, you're a writer yourself, so <laughs> yeah. you, may, you might understand. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think family life definitely plays a very large part in my poetry or in my impetus to write as well. Do you remember what you wrote about when you were eight? I think my poems were always directed to my parents. Mm. At uh, or towards my family at least, oh. and it would be a painting, a beautiful painting, a beautiful picture of a, like a, a loving family. Mm. <laughs> right, right. I think that's one the wonderful thing uh, about the ability to create art in general, but also uh, to write specifically is that you know whatever situation we might be in, we can use our creativity to construct something better than maybe the situation we're in. Exactly. It could be also a creative way of training, of turning something that is frustrating or somehow that you find hurtful into something that is uh, creative or when read, like, make people feel like they understand you or they're less lonely. And I guess that's one of the reasons that people tend to write. So they can share these thoughts right. as well. Right, yeah. Turning to the poem that you brought for us, I was wondering if you could read it, and then we can talk about it. Uh, okay, I, you mean read it in, uh, in Arabic or in English? Both. Which one? Which version did you write first? I wrote it in Arabic. I only translated when, uh, when actually one of my foreign friends asked me to, because he wanted it as a gift as well. So you, I wrote a card for him. Oh, okay. I wrote it for him in English. Okay, well, that, that's very nice of you. So, yeah, if you can read the Arabic first and then the English one. All right. So, Al-Harib, that's the title, which mm -hmm. means war. أخبروني أن الحرب تجعل منك رجلا لم يخبروني أنها سوف تنهب طفولتي وها أنا الآن لست بطفل ولا برجل بل شبح تملكه ذكريات ولا يملكها 
they told me that the war makes a man out of me. However, they didn't mention that it will steal my childhood. And here I am now, not a child, nor a man, but a ghost that is owned by memories that don't belong to him. Thank you. As the listeners can hear, it is a very short poem, but it it packs a lot inside these few words. I was wondering, in general, do you tend to write shorter poems, or do you just write whatever length comes to you, depending on the poem? I think I tend to write shorter poems because the moment of inspirations are they come and uh, I write something directly and then I'm distracted by something else and I move on. Mm. This is my tendency. That doesn't mean that that's always the case. Sometimes mm. I write longer poems. Right. When I say longer, I mean like three poems long. Mm. But yes, short poems uh, tend to take over my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually similar. A lot of my poems are very short then there are other length poems, like the one that I sent you uh, is a little bit longer, uh, not the longest. but So yeah, it, it's definitely similar. Can you tell us a little bit about when did you write this poem, firstly? I'm not sure of the date, but I, I would say around a month, a month and a half, two months ago, two months ago. Oh, two months ago. Wow. Um, so when you, when you read it for us, it was basically the first time that you read it? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> it was the first time that I read it publicly. Wow, wow, that's amazing. What was it that made you decide to write this poem? I, I was uh, at, the, at the house of my friend. Mm. Sometimes inspiration could be provoked. It doesn't have to come by itself. I believe you can, you can poke it, you can incent it even. Right. He's an artist, he, he draws, he's a graffiti street artist, illustrator, and so on. Mm. And we said, let's do something, let's collaborate. Mm. We chose a topic, and for some reason we chose war. Mm. He drew something, mm. and I wrote something, and we put them together. Mm. When I was writing it, I try to remember the stories that my dad would tell me, mm. my father would tell me, because we had been through the civil war from 1975 to 1990, mm-hmm. uh, our parents' generation. Mm-hmm. And I've also tried to draw a bit from my memories, uh, from Yusuf, the guy who, uh, the guy who drew the picture, and, uh, and his uh, parents as well. Mm. So it's memories that we, that we collected somehow and turned into a collage or a collaboration. Right, right. I remember you sent me the artwork for uh, Yosef's artwork, which is really beautiful and, um, I mean, like visually very beautiful at the same time when you look at what is depicting, it's shocking and it is heartbreaking, really. Because his illustration shows uh, child soldiers, but it's not apparent from your poem if that was exclusively what you were talking about. So I, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the link between your words and his artwork. His artwork is basically kids who are underage but holding a weapon. Mm-hmm. We created this, but we like to believe like they were posing <laughs> rather than using them to actually shoot at people. Mm. 
But the truth is, our parents did uh, hold guns at a very young age, at one point. The link is that uh, the war, and I believe that is mentioned somehow in your poem as well, mm-hmm. that the war is publicized as something to be proud of that makes a man out of you. Mm-hmm. And no one tells you the impact it will leave on you, the weight it will make you carry. And no one will tell you that that doesn't leave you. It, it's like a burden that stays for your entire life. And and you don't own this burden because the idea was somehow imposed into this, the society that you need to fight, you need to protect your country. This is patriotism. Mm-hmm. And at one point, military service was mandatory in Lebanon, and one of my brothers had to like be part of the army yeah. at one point until it wasn't anymore. So he was released. Yeah. So they make it sound as a duty mm-hmm. when, and they talk about one side of it only. They don't talk about the other side. Mm-hmm. No one does, I believe. I think one of the difference between the poem that I sent you and and your poem is that your poem depicts civil war, whereas mine is more uh, about an invasion. Since both Yusuf and your father remained in Lebanon after the civil war, how do they process that? Because they have remained basically at the site of the strife. You mean them remaining in the country during the civil war and afterwards? Yeah, after the civil war. So how do they process that? Because it is somewhat different fighting somebody within your own country and also staying in this place where it plays on the current situation, right? Because it's so recent. Yes. I think they deal with it like uh, most of the parents in Lebanon or the families in Lebanon deal with it. It is not uh, discussed or talked about. Mm. Just kind of try to move on or not talk about it because it's a sensitive topic for all of them. Even in our history books, there's a very small paragraph about the civil war and it doesn't mention any details, just the day of when it started, how it started and when it ended. So Mm. even us as the new generation. We don't learn about the civil war at schools. We have to ask our parents, ask people, and read books. For us, even to ask them about how it was, it's a bit difficult to get an objective answer, you can say. Mm. My dad depicts the war as something that was harsh, but also that has, as I've seen from his behavior, that has been normalized to him because it lasted to them, to both of them. Because it lasted for 15 years, so right. people at one point had to go on with their life during the civil war. Right. They would actually go to school when there isn't when the bombing would stop in certain areas. People would go to school. People would try to work if they can. Would open their shop if there isn't any shooting, so they can make a living. Mm-hmm. And then after this war ended, if we want to go into details. What happened is our currency rate changed from three Lebanese liras equal one dollar mm-hmm. to one thousand five hundred Lebanese lira equal one dollar. Wow. And everybody had their money Lebanese lira, so they had a new problem to worry about. Right. So no one was talking about the civil war once the civil war ended. They had to search for money, search for jobs. They had a new mission in their head and something new to worry about. Right. So that gave them 
somehow a huge distraction mm. and uh, when it comes to co-living if that is the point you wanted to discuss uh, we are a country that has 18 different religious sects mm. and the war has impacted us in a way that we do live somehow in different areas but that doesn't mean we don't meet at one point the young people meet a lot mm-hmm. But during the civil war, the Muslims tended to move a bit west and the Christians tended to move a bit east. Mm. And that is still the case statistically. However, as families, um, it doesn't stop us from being friends. It doesn't stop us from interacting. Right. It doesn't stop us from being human to each other. Right. And I think overall, our parents are tired from wars. Yeah. So they don't have it uh, in their heart to to do anything that will cause it again. Hopefully, right? Because to have such an instability in a person's life as a backdrop, like you said, sort of normalizes certain behavioral norms, right? And also not talking about it and being tired from all the fighting sometimes can be bad as well because then there is a sort of unnatural silence, unnatural tolerance for things that should not be tolerated and then they burst into other fighting you know other in other aspects of life i was wondering if that's something that you've experienced as a new generation you mean have i experienced uh, because we're not allowed to talk about or because it's a bit of a taboo to talk about it have it affected my life in a way, yes. I think it's a related topic. I will start with my dad a bit. For me, he's a person <laughs> because of uh, him have to go in, have to go through the war, and this is something people don't understand. They think because of violence, and this is what amazes me about the Lebanese people. They think because of violence happened once, and uh, it have been suppressed in one way or another, or not talked about rather than suppressed, or they made people get distracted with other problems. But the thing is, the outcome that I've witnessed from the Lebanese people is that because they've been through 15 years long war, they want to party now. They want to live their life. And you will see us and we like to eat, we like to drink, we like to socialize. We're very social people. You will see us walking in the street and we will smile at each other. Mm. And I think that is one of the positive things, if I want to talk about it, is even during the civil war, you know, night of life never stopped in Beirut. Because if there's a slight chance that we might die tomorrow, we might as well enjoy the day. Mm. And for the new generation, I think we have a lot of artists in the country. Mm. So we have Jumeizi, we have Marcayel, we have Vedaro, uh, we have uh, even a bit of Ashrafi and Hamra. And there are a lot of artists. They are not seen because our government doesn't focus on these programs or doesn't highlight them, but we have so many artists, whether it comes to people who paint, whether it comes to street artists, whether it comes to people who write, who play music. And I believe because our country, the rocky history we've been through, and because this generation, honestly, have also suffered a lot, we've been through wars already as well, Mm. and we've been through economic crisis and currency collapses and July 4 explosion and... Mm so on and so on. The outcome of it has been us also being creative about it. We've been able, and it really, truly, I say it, and uh, I get goosebumps whenever I say it, that it amazes me how creativity has been the outcome of this violence or this 
trauma we we have witnessed as mm-hmm. a community, mm-hmm. and it might not be projected to the community. It might be projected individually, each one with his or her own style. Mm-hmm. And it taught me to to express myself, if anything, because. If history were suppressed, then you need to express it in different manners, maybe not verbally, maybe not directly, but it needs to be expressed in one way or another. Right, right, yeah. Especially if it's not talked about, right, because what your parents experience do affect you in, in indirectly because their behaviors continue, you see their behaviors. And I think you kind of mentioned that a little bit. You talked about normalizing life, having war in the background. Well, because it's a 15-year war, because it lasted a long time, a large part of their lives, they had to learn to live with it. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if your parents ever talked with you about what it feels like the comparison between living in a long-term war and then now living outside of the war, but still, you know, having to deal with all these other problems that you're talking about because there were other conflicts in there. Currently, there's a lot of unrest and currency collapse and the explosions a few months back. So have they talked with you about how it feels to them, that what is like between the two different ways of living and how different are they they haven't talked about it as in let's sit down and (laughs) talk about our feelings and how this situation makes us feel Mm. but they kind of throw phrases now and then about how frustrated they are how tired they are how corrupted this country is we tend to hear these complaints that come and go when we are sitting with our parents i don't think they see it From outside, it is because I had to study about the civil war and the impact it had on the people because it's part of my job. But I don't think as as people who went through it, as the older generation, they didn't have the luxury to see it that way. Mm. They're too busy with the problems that are going on with their life. It's just something that is continuous. But one of the opinions that I've heard that for some families, that wasn't the opinion of my family, Mm. but one of the families of my friends, was like after the war, after the civil war, everything started going and downhill as in economically. And once you're not comfortable financially, and that is the case of my parents as well, then there is this feeling of, of tiredness that comes with it when it doesn't end. Right. So to them, it's like the war has moved from a weapon war to an economic war. So there is no violence, but there is financial crisis. Mm. You have mentioned that you had to study it, and then previously you said that in school, in terms of official education, there isn't much information about it. So how did you get to study it and learn more about what happened? There are books that talk about the history. They are not books that are published by the government. They are published by several historians and artists and you read you need to read different opinions to get like a a wider image Mm. so through reading books through asking questions to people who have been through the war when when the time is right because it's not a topic you can bring up Mm -hmm. all the time 
and also through movies. One of the best movies that depicts the Lebanese civil war is called West Beirut, and I think that is one of my favorite movies ever. Hmm. This is how I've learned about the civil war personally. Okay. Wow. Going back to your writing, because we, we didn't really talk about it, is writing something that you've officially studied, or is it something that you just do? I have never studied it, mm. but I think it is my aim at one point, because uh, you, you can always go and learn from other people. Mm. I've uh, always uh, went through dictionaries when I'm not sure about something, I would research it. Uh, if I don't have the correct phrase, it was something that is done organically, like self-taught. And it's, as you can see, my writing is humble. It's not something <laughs> very complicated. Mm, right, right. And I think it's very practice in, in many ways because it takes a lot to me. Uh, obviously, I don't know the Arabic version of it. But it takes a lot to be able to condense such complex uh, subject matter and also complex emotions through only, you know, a, a few lines. In Arabic, this poem is only two lines. It just packs so much in its two lines. You write it about it takes practice. Arabic is a bit more difficult when it comes me when it comes to writing than English mm. but I love I love writing in Arabic because every word feels like a poem by itself mm. the Arabic language is very expressive mm. and, it, and it has these letters that have their weight they have their value you know like uh, they're poetic by themselves mm. so it is actually more difficult to write in Arabic and I don't do it as often as I write in English because when I do I need to ha- I need to keep in mind the technical part of it. Uh, I need to put more effort in the in being grammatically correct if you want to. But when I do write Arabic I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. I heard from other writers that uh, in Lebanon, Arabic is the uh, primary language, but then there are also secondary languages that people learn. When did you start learning Arabic, and was it at the same time as English? Yes, learning Arabic was at the same time as learning English. And it depends on the schools. There are schools that teach uh, Arabic and French simultaneously, and there are schools that teach English and Arabic simultaneously. So right. that's why there are, you have the two versions. And most of the private schools, they tend to teach the three of them together, mm. Arabic, English, and French. Mm. So when you're in the private school, you have the biggest, bigger tendency to be able to speak English and French at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we use a lot of English and French in our slang language. Mm. So even people who don't know, who haven't learned French, they would know to use uh, how to use a few words or a few sentences because they are very repetitive in our society or in our conversations. Okay, okay. That's really interesting. So when, when you started writing at eight, were you writing in English then? Yes, I was writing in English 
because my mom used to talk to me in English. She's she's Filipino, so sometimes she talk in Arabic, but uh, most of the time she talk in English with me. Mm-hmm. And because I used to watch a lot of television as well, mm-hmm. so English programs, cartoons, I was influenced by that as well. But that helped me catch the language faster. Okay. Yeah. So most of the times I write English. Okay. Okay. So when did you start writing also in Arabic? I think um, once I've started learning the proper uh, rules mm. so and being able to use those tools to be able to write. So maybe I think two years later after, so around 10, mm. okay. so at that age. Right. Uh, it's funny now that I haven't thought about these things, but now that you've asked me, I'm like trying to dig them outside <laughs> from inside my head. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, when you're 8 or 10, you, it's very natural, right? It's whatever is nearby you, you use those tools to express yourselves. You don't necessarily deliberately say, oh, okay, today I'm going to write in English, tomorrow I'm going to write in Arabic. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And, and also having multiple languages at hand, I don't know if you feel that as well, is that you, you feel certain languages express certain emotions better or is able to say certain things better? That is very interesting what you're saying. I think the same word said in Arabic, English or French could have a different wave mm. or the same sentence. Right. We've talked about it, me and my friends and uh, so on. And we've tried to actually to be aware of when we think, do we use more English or do we use more Arabic, which is our native language. Mm-hmm. We tried, which was difficult, but I think there was a time where we used most, where we used English and there were times where we used Arabic. Mm-hmm. And when we talk to each other, for example, uh, if we say we're sorry, to us it's easier or it's lighter to say it in a foreign language than in, uh, in Arabic, in our mother tongue, for example. Okay. Or if you say, I don't know, something as common as the sentence, I love you, it's much easier or much uh, casual when you say it uh, in English rather than in when you say it in Arabic. It's more serious, kind of, or more, or more meant, you can say. And mm-hmm. it's something, I don't know why we interpret that way but that is how we agreed that we felt about it me and a couple of people we've discussed it with i've discussed it with right right and i feel the same way because i speak different languages but i didn't learn them simultaneously i learned other languages more sequentially so to me there are certain words in english that does not have the same weight for instance i always think of curse words there are some like very heavy curse words in English that I think to native speakers mean a lot more. And also that depends on individual experiences, yeah. right, as well. So I, of course, of course. <laughs> I never, yes. so I, I was never sure if it's because uh, I learned English later on that there is an emotional distance between me and certain words. Or if it's just exactly, a, right. right, or if it's an individual uh, thing. So, so I I think in you know in talking with somebody like you who has learned two languages simultaneously, it's really 
interesting to sort of compare those experiences and see that you feel the same as well, that somehow the words in one language carries more emotional weight than in another language. So that, that's fascinating. I completely agree. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it really is. As you mentioned before, there are quite a few elements that our poems share not the least uh, the subject matter, which is also about war, uh, but a different kind of war. So I'm going to read that now, and then we can talk about it. Yes, please, go ahead. It's called To Drive Out Darkness. On the drumming of glorious futures, bedecked with emblems of heroic deeds, Johnny got his gun to bayonet past the firm grasp of poverty's reign, to bore the promise of modernity's train, whistling education free to few, and corporate ladders lowered to climb, with safe return embedded caveat steps. Ice filled with the romance of falsehoods and the tender hands of beloved's pledge, beckoning with thumb-suckling babes, dribbling to sweetheart's languid kiss. He took up arms against Adumbro foes to wrench the treasures from their midst. Of the happy life in limited supply, commanders ensconced in plush hideouts adamantly claim cannot be homespun. Therefore, that plundered must be restored as there are now no resources to mend. Sing him the hymn of unity abreast, brothers, sisters marching against, enemies said to have been usurped by brutality's strangling hold, which forming folklore in propaganda's mouth coos will only yield its steely grip under assaults by violent means. Guns, tanks, ballistic missiles shock all, but muted under IED's ad-lib curse. Drones remote scatter from video game screens, weddings from funerals, wailing feasts. Johnny, amongst countless companies of youths, spend their surging springs tilling drenched to water hardened fields far from native lands planting seeds of autonomy by brute force. Though millions root their souls in foreign soils, harvest comes but in contorted fruits, carrying the venom of plutocratic zeal, spurring on transgenerational bloodlust, as may plain by survivors suffering, missing limbs or psychosis bound, though worse futures may still await. As Johnny awoke to the molding smell from pores that bled out ideals ardor and inhaled the refuse fumes of jet-fueled heaps, his clock unwinds its dwindling hours, uncrusting sour anxiety-soaked sheets, left to wilt under grotesque negligence, no longer of use for mercenary feats. Who will compose the sweeping music? beating to this legendary death march? Who will conjure the fabled gallantry in verse to rhyme history back on track, 
to war again to end all wars. Wow. Thank you. Did you write this all at once or did it take several times? This is one of those poems. Uh, yeah, funny enough. I wrote most of it in one sitting, even though the first time I started to write it, I was sort of in the middle of something else. So I wrote a couple of lines. And then the next time I wrote most of it. Uh, and then there was some discomfort with some of what I wrote. So I took it to a workshop. So it was one of the poems that I actually took to a workshop and I workshopped it. So this version that you see was after that. When you say you workshopped it, did it incorporate different people's opinion to make this piece? The changes, the edits that I made incorporated different opinions. Because what I wrote, as you could probably tell just from the poem itself, the overall tone of the poem is very distant. distant yes. Right? So it's not as emotionally immediate. The language, too. Has, exactly. Yeah. So some of the feedback I got was that it was too, they didn't use the word philosophical, but I feel like it's much more philosophical looking rather than embedding people in the horrors of war as other war poems have done, you know, poems from people who have actually been to war. Whereas I'm writing from someone who has never seen war directly only indirectly reading about it or through other people's experiences. Yes, of course, that is part of the poem, the, the experience you had and at the same time the experience you didn't have. Right. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank the you. fact that it had actually so much details, even though you haven't been through this experience, it makes it even more creative for me. Thank you. I'm very curious about how did you get the inspiration to write this yeah. or what drove you to write this? So in general, I am very anti-war. I think there are other ways of solving conflicts that are much less destructive and help to bring about a better future than war. And I feel, I feel like war actually makes things worse for all parties involved. But specifically, I wrote the first like two lines, uh, not the first two lines of the poem, I don't think. It was somewhere in the middle. Was, I, I don't remember exactly, but it, I wrote the first sitting, I wrote a very small part of it. In reaction to a piece of news I was watching about how soldiers, veterans, came back from war and were dying of cancer because of these burning piles, which I refer to pretty much almost at the end of the poem, um, that they were dying of cancer. And the government in general, even though we have a veterans healthcare system that specifically address veterans needs, there is a very large gap in terms of when they need the help and when they get it. So they wait a long time. And specifically with these incidents of cancer is that they have to appeal to this authority, veterans healthcare system, to get recognition for their cancer as being caused by their participation in our invasion of other countries. So that's one of the things I wanted to write about. And also 
our social structure, our economic structure is such that even though we have an all-volunteer army, the fact is there are some very poor segments of the population. People of color tends to be much poorer than others. Also poor whites as well that feel like they have no other option but to participate in the voluntary army because it is so to them as a way that they can get education, provided, of course, they come back both physically and mentally, psychologically intact, which is seldom the case. So those are some of the many (laughs) inspirations for this poem. Wow, I didn't know about that, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is both that is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's that's one of the things that a lot of people I mean same for me of Lebanon, right? Un- until I speak with you about your living situation, I think many people from different countries looking at each other, we have this idea in our head of what the country is about, what the people are about, but then we have conversations with them and then we realize who actually is much more complicated and much more complex. And I I think one of the reasons I got the critique that I did was because I set this poem using a very well-known World War I story called uh, Johnny Got His Gun. I don't know if you ever read that. Uh, It's a novel. I've never read it. I heard about the novel, but I've never actually read it. Yeah. Yeah, so I read it a long time ago. It's very much an anti-war novel, and it talks about World War One in terms of history is taglined as the war to end all wars. Obviously, it never ended all wars, and World War One is quite famous in terms of modern warfare. It's sort of like the, the first, I think, the most recognized symbol of humanity's entry into modern warfare. And it is also recognized for, I think, the first large instance of using chemical weapons. And so there's a continuance of the idea of bodies being poisoned. So I embedded idea about this modern war that we have been fighting into the story about the first modern war. That is very interesting. And I wanted to ask you if, uh, if it's something you usually do, or actually my first question was, do you like this poem more now that it's workshopped, or do you prefer it before it was edited? No, no, I generally only take my poems to workshops where I feel like there's something missing. So I, I take it to a workshop where people with fresh eyes can look at it and to kind of give me more objective feedback about what they think is missing so that I could sort of see that and I could sort of help me verbalize what I don't really understand, just this kind of uncomfortable feeling with this poem, you know? So I I don't know if you've gone to workshops before where you get opinions and such. I've never been to workshops unfortunately usually if i have this feeling about the poem i send it by email to like a group of my friends who have different backgrounds or who wouldn't mind reading it and giving me their opinion their honest opinion about it 
this is my version, <laughs> if you can say, of a workshop. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's always nice to get a view of a fresh uh, eye and it makes the words, the work itself, uh, I believe, in a more valuable because it makes you seize, it opens your eyes to the things in a way that you haven't seen them before and then you can go back to yourself and then add something with your own style. Right, right, exactly. Because, you know, I feel like what you describe, even though it's informal, it's basically the workshop process. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm sending my poem to people that I don't necessarily know very well. You are sending them to people that you do know. But process-wise, it's very similar, is that people will tell you what they think about it, and they will make suggestions, and then you can decide ultimately, because you are the author, you are the poet, you know, you ultimately decide what elements you want to keep, what elements you want to discard, and what you want to modify. So to me, it's, it's a very important process, especially when I feel like I'm a little bit s stuck with a piece. There's something that makes me uncomfortable, like something is wrong, but I can't tell what it is, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing I'm curious about, I've heard your poetry at Sidewalk, mm -hmm. and I've read this poem, and I have a question. Do you tend to write about experiences that you weren't personally involved do you have that pattern yeah it's, it's interesting to me to me because when i go to sidewalk for example and hear you talk or hear uh, any of the attendants speak it always inspires me actually that there, are, there could be so many different styles and it never, it's never boring it's always raw and everybody has their own thing that makes them original right so this is why i'm asking you about this yeah, in terms of writing topics, I will write about anything. I <laughs> I have written about dog poop. <laughs> so, oh, <wow>. Yeah. <laughs> you have to send me this one later on. <laughs> yeah, come to Sidewalk. I'll read it for you. <laughs> it's just... Definitely, definitely. Yeah, to me, I think my entry into a poem is not a predefined route. So I would take inspiration from anywhere. You know, the dog poop poem is not necessarily about dog poop and, and everything else, too. Like, I, I've written erotic poetry. That's not about erotica at all. There's a little bit elements of eroticism in it. To me, is when I write, is whatever moves me at the moment. And because I read a lot of news, and a lot of news affect us, you know, even if... People think they don't affect us. They do affect us, if only on a pure emotional level. So when I, I'm reading about the long-term wars that the United States has been involved in and the price of war, not only to the people who are being invaded and who are being affected directly by our invasions, but also by how the soldiers, when they come back, how you know, the difference of treatment between when they are being recruited, when they're sold this wonderful story of how they could exchange their youth for something idealistic, uh, but then when they come back broken in many different ways, how we just neglect them. So I feel like there is actually a parallel between these two groups of people that is a story that's not being told enough 
because the political landscape doesn't allow that narrative to come through. So then I want to write about it. I want to, in my own way, play my part in bringing that narrative to the fore to highlight it. Okay, so you feel like it gives you a sense of achievement as well to be able to expose this in your own way. It stands with the values you have. I don't know about achievement in terms of being recognized for highlighting something because I'm no, not... No, not recognized, but I mean like in between, uh, between you and yourself, Yeah, It, ah. it gives you... And just like writing, I don't know, when being in love and writing about love, for example. Right, in that sense, yeah, because uh, again, I... I tend to write from a very emotional place when I feel emotionally moved by whatever I write about those things, whether it's going to a poetry open mic where I feel emotionally elated by the words I'm hearing by other people's creativity, I will write something or emotionally devastated because, you know, of some fight I'm having with a love interest or watching the news about wars that are happening elsewhere or the economic and also social plights that my fellow compatriots are going through. Even if I'm not going through it myself, I still feel that this inequity does not help us overall on the smaller scale, American citizens, but also on a larger scale as fellow human beings. I just don't feel like... Yeah. So my drives are very emotionally based. Okay. And sort of more directly answer your question is that when I write these pieces, I feel like I'm giving voice to that discomfort. I'm allowing an exit, a way for me to express those emotions. Uh, And and of course, uh, now I have these outlets because I go to open mics. And and so other people hear it. So, uh, yeah. The reason why I find it interesting, because and the reason also I ask, do you go back to your poetry usually? Or uh, is it something that doesn't happen often? Is because I believe that when you write poetry and let's say you're sitting and you're writing uh, something for the first time, an idea or a thought or whatever, mm-hmm. and when it's written in a poetic way, it's the ultimate truth. You're not thinking about the technical words or the right words you use, you're just writing how you feel. Mm-hmm. And this is the, it's the version of yourself. So this is one of the things I love about poetry. Not only you express your feeling, but you express the truth or mm-hmm. what is the truth to you at the same time. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, I love what you said about expressing the truest version of yourself because of the immediacy between how you feel and also what you're writing. Because pre-editing, of course, it's very raw. You're just letting your fingers bleed you, kind of in, in a way, bleed your emotions uh, out into the world. So, so that is the difference between between, for example, poetry to me or or the news, for example, because we were talking about the news as well, mm-hmm. an article or media, it is something that is edited and read several times and goes through several people checking for political correctness and so on. 
So by the time it's done, it's a story that has facts, but it's, I don't know if you can call it the truth itself, but based on the fact uh, or based on the history books that we, for example, the things we learn at school that are not always the, the correct version or the original story told. So to me, that is the difference between things that are written in that uh, manner and poetry. That's why I've always, I'm always uh, happy to read to, to read poetry, even especially when it talks about those problems that, that needs to be covered more often. And mm. people don't realize it. Poetry is one of the ways to express it or to re- reveal it or to share it with people or to raise awareness maybe even about it. Right, right. I, I think, um, as you said, a poetry tells a more, much more personal story. It is from one particular person's view, even if the poet is talking about something they've never experienced. It is the way that they experience other people's experience. So there is an immediacy to it. At the same time, I also find that poetry shares something in common with other media in terms of the editing process, because the poetry that's being presented publicly we don't know how raw it is depending on the setting of course because you could actually have poetry improvisations where you're seeing somebody write at the same time that they're writing i've like been involved in that process before where you're just taking whatever is stimulating you and you're writing it down into poetry at that time it depends of course in terms of the outlet for me I search for journalism and sources I feel like I can rely on if I find that they are telling different points of view because that is what journalism in its ideal form is supposed to be, is to tell different sides of the story, sometimes within one segment. And it's not always easy for people who have participated in that process for the sources of of journalism because they are pouring their hearts out to tell their stories but then seeing the entire news segment that covers both sides that might contradict each heartfelt pouring can be very painful because you feel in some ways that the journalists might have betrayed you even if you know that that is their process that is what their idealized job is supposed to be is to go around and looking at different perspectives to the same story. And obviously, journalists are human beings as well, whether or not they are trying to be objective. The fact is, they always have their own point of view. And because they are telling us from their point of view, it's not very different in some ways than a poet telling us an experience that they didn't have direct experience themselves. So I think journalists try because their job is to try to cover many different sides. At the same time, not only because a person is the filter, but also because there is a limited time, there's limited resources that, you know, very seldom do journalists get to tell the perfectly objective story. They tell what they can find within the confines of their limited resources and limited perspectives. I think as as people who consume the news, one of our jobs, not just jobs, obligations, I think to ourselves, 
is to try to read from different sources so that we're not always hearing the same perspective at all times. Of course, I agree to that, is to try to always diversify our sources so we can always have also an open mind to different perspectives. Another thing a bit farther from the topic, Mm. I wanted uh, to ask you what do you do actually other than this podcast, of course, and writing poetry. Actually, these are my main jobs, quote-unquote jobs, basically. So this is what I do uh, at the moment. This is what I concentrate on, what I believe in, what I really enjoy. So this is it for now. Do you publish your writings? I have published recently as well as previously, and I do submit my publishing. Yeah, I do both. Is it just poetry? I've written different in different forms. More recently, I've written satire, both in poetry and, and also prose. So I've a couple of things that's been published that's satire as well. And, and just like bitter social commentary. <laughs> um, because, you know, it's we've been through, we're still going through a lot of social turmoil in the U.S., so, uh, but my main form of writing currently, it is uh, poetry, but I, I have written just straight up social commentary before. That's not satire. I mean, if you go to my Twitter, I'm writing social commentary a lot. My, I rant on Twitter all the time. So back to you. I, I want to know if you have any favorite virtual open mics that you would recommend to the listeners and also how people might follow you online. I would recommend people to join Sidewalk because it's the only local platform here that I know that is doing online uh, in in Lebanon that Mm -hmm. I know of. There Mm -hmm. could be something. Uh, So if they could, uh, let them do that. Mm -hmm. If people are interested in following me, they can do so on social media. That is the only part right now that I share my poetry in online. That is the only place. Mm -hmm. And I also have a blog that's called Aya's Blog. Very basic. Where I share basically my stories, uh, my raw stories of of a woman living in uh, in the city in Beirut, in Lebanon. And... Mm -hmm. uh, how everything affects me, how I react to it. Yeah. The link can also found, be found in my bio and my Instagram account. Mm-hmm. What is the username on Instagram? It's Aya Rasa, A-Y-A-R-A-F-E-T. Three is like a A in Arabic, so Rasa, yeah. Did you say three? This is my name and... Yes, number three, A-Y-A-R-A-F-E-3. So in Arabic, we have letters that don't have translation in English mm. when you speak to each other in Arabic, but using English letters on WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. So for the, like, ha, for the letter ha, we use seven, and for the letter a, we use three. <laughs> it's oh. very weird, I know. No, no, that's cool. That's cool to know. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. 
I really appreciate this opportunity as well. It's been lovely having this conversation with you and getting to know you more. I've really enjoyed it. Thank so um, thank you. <laughs> and to all of the people who will listen to this. Yes. Thank you all. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.